Some sort of moving truck. What if your neighbor is moving and asks you to help them tomorrow to pack up? And you say, sure. And the next day, you're just not in the mood. To what extent must you follow through with your verbal commitments? Today's topic is allegiance to a pledge. A fascinating topic in Jewish law. It's Tuesday, 12.15 p.m. Time for another session of Torah study called Lunch and Learn. Today is 154. Hello, everybody joining on for our lesson. Today's topic is allegiance, the importance of coming through on a verbal commitment. What does Jewish law have to say about this topic, which is relevant to pretty much everyday life? We will learn some Jewish law today and see the spirit and perspective of halacha, of Jewish law, on this relevant topic. Welcome. Let's get ready. <clears throat> Say a blessing over a cup of water. Baruch We'll talk about Ryan Leslie and we'll talk about some cases and see how halacha, how Jewish law will or would deal with such a case. <clears throat> and this is very practical. We make commitments to different people and sometimes it gets difficult. Life is complex and there are at times hardships coming through and fulfilling a expectation, fulfilling a commitment. When or to what extent must we go to fulfill and a uh, verbal commitment? Today's lesson is divided into four sections. We have a source sheet prepared especially for today's lesson in your email inbox or on this post there is a link. You can download it, print it out and get ready to follow along for a 60 minute or so lesson as we explore this topic, the topic of pledges from a Jewish perspective, from halacha. So the case of Ryan Leslie is like this. Ryan Leslie, a famous uh, I guess music writer, music producer and songwriter. About 10 years ago or so, he was in Germany, I believe, and he lost his laptop stolen from his car. And on this laptop, there was lots of intellectual property, the songs that he was preparing for uh, to produce a new album. And he made a public statement online on social media saying that if somebody returns his laptop to him, he will gift them, he will reward them with $1 million. And sure enough, some guy found his laptop and returned it to him, but he refused to pay the 100 or the $1 million. And this went to court, and eventually the court ruled that Ryan Leslie is obligated to pay up the reward that he promised. What would Jewish law say in such a case? If this case came, came before a Beitin, before a Jewish judicial court, would they, following the laws of Torah, Torah doesn't just talk about kosher and Shabbos, Torah has tort law, Torah has law between man and, and a friend, laws, um, criminal law, as well as just law of uh, damages and so on. What does Torah law say in such a case? And Torah law gives us a perspective on life. What does Torah say about this case? Would Ryan Leslie have to pay? Another similar case, which will happen, can happen to any of us, a buyer and seller, a, tenant and a la potential tenant and a landlord come to a verbal agreement on a price, but they agree to sign the contract tomorrow. 
they make a commitment, they, uh, a verbal commitment, they agree on something, and then later on, the next day, before signing, one of them wants to retract, one of them wants to back out, price goes, wants to be, want, the seller wants a higher price or the buyer wants a lower price. Do they have to, do they have an obligation? Could a court enforce them to carry through with their verbal agreement? <clears throat> so these are some of the things that we'll talk about today. And what if you just tell your friend, uh, I will lose this amount of pounds. I'm going on a diet. Do you have to follow through with your commitments? Or if you check it out the next day, that's okay. Let's take a look at our first section. Today's lesson is divided into four sections as we get a glimpse into this topic and see a little bit how halakha, how Jewish law works. So here we go. Source number one. <clears throat> Source number one. Hello, uh, Ro uh, Jody and Jack and Roman, how everybody, hello everybody joining on now and that will be watching later. Welcome to our study session of studying Torah, wrapping our brains around God's wisdom. Source number one, a person says to another, we have a quote here from Maimonides, who is uh, a very primary source of Jewish law. A person says to another, I am selling this wine to you. Here I have a barrel of wine. I am selling this wine to you. He says, I am selling this wine to you. And they fix the price. Okay, I'm selling you this barrel of wine for $100. The purchaser agrees and says, I have purchased it. They're talking. They're just talking. I am giving, I'm selling you this wine, 100 bucks. The guy says, okay, I'm going to buy it. I'm buying it. The seller says, I have sold it. The purchaser says, I have purchased it. The seller says, I have sold it. But they even tell witnesses, serve as witnesses to this transaction. But there was no exchange of money. There was no exchange of the wine. The wine barrel was in the storage house and the money stayed where it was. It was just verbal. Their words are of no consequence. It is as if they had never spoken to each other at all. The same applies with regard to gift giving. The Maimonides is talking, a court will not be able to enforce this sale because if the next day the buyer or the seller retracts and wants to go back or go get out of this deal, there is no way the court can enforce them for this deal to go through because it was only a verbal commitment. And even though there were witnesses witnessing this, this conversation, nonetheless, words are of no consequence. And the same applies with regard to gift giving. If one says, I will give you a gift of $125, and he says, okay, I have gotten your gift, but the money stays where it is, and all there was was speech, all there was was verbal commitment that is not enforceable by the court and there is of, of no consequence they each can retract and similarly right just from this paragraph you would see that in the case of Ryan Leslie that he lost his laptop he may have made a public announcement that he's going to gift or pay a million dollars for he who for the one who re returns the laptop to him but all there was was a verbal commitment and a verbal commitment does not suffice a court a jewish court a jewish judicial court will not be able to enforce just a verbal commitment source number two this will go to another extreme an article is not acquired merely through verbal agreements if however the purchase is completed through a kinyan 
A kinyan is a Hebrew word which is very important in the laws of transactions. A kinyan is one of the designated acts by which property is transferred. Any kind of property, property or items, any kind of article of which is being transferred from one possession, one's possessions to another through sale, through a gift. There is a kinyan. Different kind of items have different kinds of kinyans, different kinds of designated acts which um, make the transfer. The purchaser acquires the object. So if there is a kinyan, if there is an act, a kinyan, which is a designated act by the court, not just any kind of act, the court, Jewish court, has, Jewish legal system has uh, a specific action that goes along with the sale or the gift, the, the transfer of ownership. There is no need for witnesses. Neither the seller nor the buyer may retract. This is the other extreme. When one says, I will sell you this barrel of wine for $100. But, but in addition to the verbal commitment, there is also a act, a designated act. For example, the purchaser goes and picks up this barrel of wine. And that is symbolic of the ownership transferring to the purchaser. He actually does an action. He goes and he picks up this this barrel, and so on. If someone sells, uh, sells property, if the person goes and walks around the property or does something to the property, puts up a gate or locks the, the gate, locks the gate, uh, you know, puts a key, a new lock or something like that, which is a sign of ownership, then technically, even if he did not pay for it, but there was a designated act that took place, then there was a transfer of ownership. That is the other extreme. What about if there was no act, a designated act, which transfers ownership, but there was a verbal commitment? Is there any way that halacha, Jewish law, a Jewish court, will be able to enforce a verbal commitment? We said before in Source 1 that generally not, but perhaps there is some sort of way that the court can enforce a verbal commitment. That will be the, today's discussion. Uh, for the rest of the lesson, we'll talk about how a Jewish court or Jewish law will deal with a verbal commitment. So, we're up to source number three, but just to clarify, from source number one and two, we see that there is a concept called a kinyan. Merely verbal commitment does not suffice. Just talking does not help. I say to you, I'm going to sell you. The guy says, I'm going to buy it. That has no consequence. The court cannot enforce that because... There was only words. And even if there were witnesses that you said that, so what? There are only words. Words are of no value here to the court. On the other hand, if there was a complete action, there was a transfer of ownership, even if there was no payment, but there was an act, the designated, that was called a kinyan, there was an act of transferring ownership, then there's a transfer of ownership. It does not belong to the original person anymore. But what about if there was no act of transferring the ownership? There was just a verbal commitment, but there was something together with the verbal commitment. What will Jewish law say in this case? So here we go, source number three. You can start right now. Uh, welcome, Michael and Jack and Jan. We are talking about Jewish law. What if I say I'm going to do something or I promise someone I'm going to, or I promise, I say I'm going to give you a gift. Do I have to 
do I have an obligation to follow through with this commitment or is there a way that I can retract with no problem? So here we go, source number three. The party undertaking an obligation commits some symbolic act of grasping an object such as a head covering and pulling it away from the other's grasp which denotes the legal conclusion of the agreement and cannot be rescinded. We live in a world of action. So, Halakha is telling us, there is a concept of a kinyan, not a kinyan which transfers ownership, but a kinyan which is symbolic of a agreement, of a contract. Not a written contract necessarily, but a contract, a meeting of minds. Verbal is not enough. Speech is insufficient because speech is cheap. We live in a world of action. Action is what counts. And halacha, Jewish law, will say that in order for the court to enforce a commitment, verbal commitment is, does not suffice. There need, that needs to be accompanied by a symbolic act. We'll call it a kinyan suder, some sort of action which symbolizes the seriousness of this commitment. Typically, it will be what's called kinyan suder, the kinyan of a handkerchief or a head covering, or a scarf, You'll, the, the buyer will take it away, take it from the seller, let's say, or the recipient from the one giving the gift, and lift it up, and, and in this action, that symbolizes the conclusion, the legal conclusion of the agreement, but there has to be an action, there has to be some act, some, something physical being taken, uh, uh, even symbolically, afterwards it can be returned, but it needs to be an action together with the verbal commitment. So when Ryan Leslie lost his laptop, he made a verbal commitment, but there was no Kenyan, there was no, absolutely no even symbolic action between the, the, the buyer and the seller, or between the recipient, the one who found it, and the one bestowing the gift. There was no act. It was all verbal. Only once this Kenyan happens, then the court can go ahead and enforce this commitment. Again, so let's clarify this. So there was a verbal commitment. Verbal commitment alone does not suffice. If they come to court and say, hey, we have two witnesses that says that Mr. A said to Mr. B, I will give you a gift of $100, the court cannot enforce that. But if the witnesses say that Mr. A made a verbal commitment to give $100 to Mr. B, and in addition to the verbal commitment, he actually made this symbolic act. He took the, the handkerchief and he lifted it and he did this act, this called this kinyan, which was designated by the court, this kind of act, not any kind of act, but this specific act that the court that Jewish, the Jewish halacha, Jewish legal system says to be done, then the court will say, okay, this is not just a verbal commitment, this was accompanied by an act, a symbolic act. And because it was a symbolic act, this is real serious, and the court could force him to, Mr. A, to pay up Mr. B. Even if it was just a gift, even if the man did not, Mr. B did not do anything to earn this. He just said, I'm going to give you a gift. The court will force him to give a gift because he made a kinyan. And that Kenyan is binding. If he denies the Kenyan, you have to get two witnesses. If he does not deny the Kenyan, then that's enough. A verbal commitment accompanied by a Kenyan 
The court can enforce. It is binding. I don't think the secular courts will, courts will enforce a pledge of a gift, but Jewish law will because it's not about a sale or what the person did to receive it. It's about allegiance to a verbal commitment accompanied by an act. But Jewish law recognizes maise, action. When it comes to mitzvahs, we can't just feel good in our heart to feel Jewish in our heart. We have to actually fast like Yom Kippur. And we have to actually wrap those to fill in. And we have to actually affix the mezuzah to our door. And similarly, when it comes to law, Jewish law recognizes that verbal speech is insufficient. Jewish law says there must be action, even a symbolic action, an action of, as we saw in source number... Three, the concept of a Kenyan, which is a symbolic act of grasping an object. It was not yet a transfer of ownership. But there was a symbolic act that this is serious business. Now, <clears throat> source number four. That's if there was a Kenyan. We'll just use the term Kenyan. There was this symbolic act. But what if there was not a symbolic act? So the court will not enforce it. But Jewish law does not stop there. Jewish law is not just about the laws of courts, what the courts can enforce. Jewish law is called halacha. Halacha in Hebrew means uh, to walk. Halicha means to walk. Because halacha, Jewish law, tells us the path of life. Certain things, how we should live, are enforceable by the courts. Otherwise, if, the, if people are not honest and there's nothing enforceable, then uh, society will fall apart. There's uh, There's part of life which the courts could enforce by punishment and so on and then there's the part of how we should live life which is maybe not enforceable by the court but it is nonetheless expected of us as we will see and this has layer after layer after layer so what did uh, how does the saying go honesty is saying the truth, telling the truth, that is conforming our words to reality. That our speech, our words should be conformed, should be according to the reality. Integrity is conforming reality to our words. That if we have words, we say words, we come through, we make a commitment, we make a pledge, we have an obligation to follow through. So if there was a verbal commitment accompanied by a Kenyan, by a symbolic act that the Jewish legal system um, establishes then the court can enforce it but what if the court can enforce it because there was not such a Kenyan what happens then let's turn to source number four the Talmud tells us excuse me some people paid Rabbi Chia for salt Rabbi Chia is one of the sages of the Talmud and people they he was a salt uh, merchant I guess he was selling salt this Rabbi Chia and they paid him for the salt but they did not take possession of the salt. Just because they paid, it does not mean that they own it yet. Because, uh, that's a whole different discussion. But according to Jewish law, if I pay for something, but I don't have this item yet, it's not mine yet. And that's why if it breaks on the way, that I'm not responsible for it. The, the, the company where it's coming from, the seller is responsible for it, because I don't have it yet. So, they paid for the salt, but it did not come into their possession. It was still in the possession of Rabbi Chia, but they already paid. But payment is not a transfer of ownership. It was still belonging to Rabbi Chia. They paid for it or put a deposit on this salt. 
Subsequently, the value of salt appreciated. The value of the salt went up. They decided 100 bucks for a quart of salt. And then the price went up. Rabbi Chia approached Rabbi Yochanan and asked whether he can return the payment and renege on his agreement to sell the salt. He, the, he, uh, he had a verbal agreement with these people to sell the salt at one price. But now, before there was a transfer of ownership, because the salt was still in Rabbi Chia's possession, the salt price went up and now he wants to back out. He wants to renege on his agreement and sell it to somebody else or sell it for a higher price. So Rabbi Yochanan told him, even Rabbi Yochanan told him, go and give them the salt. No. They already gave the money. You have to go and give them the salt. You have to carry through with the transfer of ownership and with this transaction. If not, if you will retract, be ready to accept upon yourself divine retribution. Now in this case, there was no Kenyan. There was no symbolic act. They had just had a verbal commitment. They, in addition to the verbal commitment, they gave money. But giving money is not one of the designated acts which is symbolic of the conclusion and the, of, of a contract. So they gave some money, they gave a deposit, but there was no Kenyan. So if they come to court, Rabbi Yochanan says, I cannot force you to give them the salt and carry through with the sale of the salt on that price. Because there was no Kenyan. There was just verbal commitment. They may have given money, but there was no grasping of the head covering and lifting it up. There was, that, there was missing that symbolic act of the seriousness of this sale, of this transaction. But there is something in addition to that. Although the courts of humans cannot enforce the sale, and technically Rabbi Chia can back out and retract and renege on his agreement, but... Rabbi Yochanan tells him that there is another element to Jewish law. There is something called divine retribution. There is a heavenly court and God will take care of you for doing such an act. We're not going to enforce it because in this world, this is a world of action. And because it was missing the act, the symbolic act, which is the conclusion and the seriousness of, of the, the contract here, not just speech, that was missing, so we can't enforce that. But it is nonetheless improper and there will be ready, you have to be ready to accept upon yourself divine retribution. What is this divine retribution that Rabbi Yochanan is talking about? Let's take a look at source number 5. The sages said, The one who punished the people of the generation of the flood, the people of the generation of the dispersion, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Egyptians at the sea, he will ultimately punish the person who does not abide by his word. There is a statement, a declaration that the rabbis, the sages, the, the judges would give this person. In this case, it would be Rabbi Chia if he backed out of this deal. And they would make this declaration that he, God, who punished the people of the generation of the flood. In the times of Noah, people were corrupt, they were immoral, they were stealing from each other, and so on. And God, there was no court uh, of people, of humans. There was a heavenly court. God took care of their punishment. And similarly, the people of the generation of the dispersion, where they built the tower, the door of the Haflaga, the generation of Haflaga, where they built the tower and tried to wage war or battle against God. And God demolished the tower and punished them. And the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, who were, who were um, very unkind to each other, 
and, and not hospitable and very mean to each other and so on. And if somebody was kind, they were tortured and punished. God punished them. There was no judicial court, but there was the heavenly court. And similarly, <coughs> the Egyptians at the sea, they were punished for enslaving the Jews for so many years. Now there was no courts, but God took care of their punishment. So the sages, uh, the judges would announce and make this declaration that he, just as God took care of their punishments without the help of a human court, so too God will take care of somebody, excuse me, who does not abide by their word because you gave a word. You had a verbal commitment. But this is not just an ordinary verbal commitment. Although the act, the Kenyan was missing, but there was a deposit. There was a transfer of money. So if there's a Kenyan, Kenyan is most important. If there's a Kenyan, actually symbolic act that's designated by the legal Jewish court system, legal system, if there's a Kenyan, then the court can enforce it. If there's no Kenyan, there's just verbal commitment, but... There is something else. There is a transfer of money. There is a deposit towards the payments. Then one can expect to get this declaration of heavenly retribution. A different form of enacting or enforcing somebody to abide by their word. Let's talk about this. In Hebrew it's called a mi shepara. He who had paid, he who... Uh, punished, so too this person who does not abide by their word should be punished by the heavenly courts. And there are many times in Torah, there are certain things that the court will enforce and there are certain things that it says like karis, uh, which is uh, like a heavenly kind of punishment that man does not get mix, doesn't mix in to take care of this. Like for example, if somebody uh, let's say eats chametz on Passover, uh, or something like that. There are certain there are certain things that are left to to the heavenly court to, to God to take care of this person. And similarly, if there was a verbal commitment and there was a transfer of money or a deposit of some of that money, the court will not enforce it. But the person is has to be ready to receive this statement, this declaration of divine retribution. What exactly uh, are the words here? Hello, Gary. We're talking about um, the importance of verbal commitments from Jewish, from a Jewish perspective. You know, they say there was this Israeli prime minister who uh, was being accused of not following through with his promises. He had promised this. He had promised that. And he got up, got out, got up there, and he said, "Well, I, it's true. I, I promised, but I never promised to keep my promises." So even if we don't may say, I promise, but we just make a commitment and we say, we're going to do this. So far we see that just verbal is not enough. Source number six. Why is the wording that the sages said that he who punished the previous generations, the generation of the flood and the Egyptians, should punish this person who does not abide by the word if there was already a transfer of money, even though there was no transfer of ownership? Because the item was still in the possession of Rabbi Chia. Why? Why do we have to mention? Why can't we just say simply, uh, God should punish you. God should punish this person. God should punish someone who does not abide by their word. Why do we have to bring in the previous generations? So there are two explanations brought. Source number six, 
One is from the Aruch HaShulchan, a book about 130, 40 years ago by Rabbi Chia Michal Epstein from the city of Navardok, passed away in the early 1900s. And he says like this, If the Talmud only said that God will punish the one who reneges on commitment, it might be understood as a reference to punishment in the afterlife. In this case, however, God will punish this person in this world, just as he did in those examples. The sages taught us this fact because justice in this world is often more persuasive than what happens in the next. So it would not suffice to just say that he who does not abide by their word, like Rabbi Chia, if he would back out of this case and say, I'm not selling you the salt even though you gave some money and we had a commitment, but I still have the salt, it's not mine, I can go back. So we might say, hey, Rabbi Chia, there's going to be divine retribution. But I might say, where is the divine retribution? Oh, in, uh, in the afterlife, after a person finishes his life in this world, when their soul gets to heaven, oh, they're going to say, hey, you did not abide by your, by your word when you lived in this world, when you lived down here, down there. So therefore, we say, no, 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 no. He who punished the generation of the flood, the people of the generation of the flood of Noah, they didn't get punished in the afterlife. They got finished right there. They got punished. And the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the Egyptians, they weren't punished in the afterlife. No, they suffered during their lifetime. And similarly, we say this declaration saying, He who did so to those generations should do so to this generation, to this individual. And in this lifetime, in this world, because that's more persuasive to tell somebody, Oh, when you, when you die, you're going to suffer. Okay. But when you're alive during this lifetime, God will exact retribution. That is more persuasive. That's one reason for this uh, wording. A second is given by one of the Ger Rebbes, the Rebbes of the city of Ger. And he says like this, source number seven, God never directly commanded these civilizations about how to live. You know, you, you might say, why were the Egyptians punished? When did God tell the Egyptians, do not enslave the Jews, do not be cruel? God never spoke to the Egyptians. How are they to know how to act? How can you punish them if they were never told what to do? Were the people of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah told that you must be kind and you're not allowed to be mean and cruel? How could God punish them? What's the answer? That God expects us and them there are certain ethical norms that ought to be dictated by common sense. God gave us a mind, a brain, and gave us common sense. And God expects, and there are certain where are we here? Certain ethical norms that ought to be dictated by common sense and intuition. And therefore, God punished them because they should have known better. There's no such thing. The way God created us is that we have a natural feeling and passion. For, uh, for knowing what's right and what's wrong. And therefore, we were held accountable. they were held accountable for their actions, even though they were never instructed exactly what to do. And similarly, uh, the same applies to the person who desires to renege on a sale when payment was already issued. He may not be violating any commandments, and the courts may not be able to enforce the agreement but he is countering the very premise of morality and therefore worthy of punishment. We're saying, just as God punished the generations of the flood and the Egyptians and Sodom and Gomorrah and the generation that waged battle against God, even though they were not explicitly told not to do so, but because they should, not, they should have had the, they should have intuitively known that this is wrong 
and therefore God punished them. Similarly over here, there was no kinyan, there was no symbolic act, a designated act to recognize the contract, the conclusion of this agreement, the seriousness, and therefore the court cannot enforce it. So you're not violating any of the commandments. You were never explicitly told not to do this. Fine, so the court won't enforce it. But nonetheless, there is divine retribution because it's expected that if you gave your word and there was a transfer of money which shows that there was a meeting of minds, you should follow through. We can enforce it, but we can tell God to enforce it. And there will be divine retribution if one reneges on such a commitment. Because there was also a transfer of money. Source number eight, Abaye said, We inform him, be aware that this is the punishment of one who does not stand by his statements. Rava said, We curse him. Abaye and Rava were colleagues, and they're one of the, the peers mentioned very often in the Talmud and in many debates. Usually Rava is correct, but sometimes Abaye is. Here Abaye says that we do not actually uh, curse this individual. So if it would be Rabbi Chia, we won't say, Rabbi Chia, you will get divine retribution. We would say, God will, he who punished, God who punished the generations of the flood and so on, should punish he who does not abide by their word. Rava says, no, we actually curse him. We say God should send retribution to you. For you have not followed through with your words. You have reneged, you have retracted your commitment after there was a transfer of money or a deposit. And some say even more, not just we say you, and we say his name, you, Mr. Mr. So-and-so. Source 9, this notification or course is made public, or curse is made publicly. This applies a tremendous amount of pressure on the person and serves as a deterrent for others. Nobody wants his reputation to be of one who does not keep commitments. The potential harm to his reputation might convince him not to renege. So we don't just say it quietly between, for this person in the court, but rather in the synagogues and public places, they might make public announcements saying, hey, this individual, let's say it was Rabbi Chia, he didn't actually do it, but let's say it was Rabbi Chia, he had a verbal commitment to sell the salt, and there was a transfer of money of those people. But because there was not yet a transfer of ownership, the salt was still in the possession of Rabbi Chia, he retracted, he went back on the sale because he wanted to sell the salt for a higher price. He, who punished the previous generation, the generation of the flood and the Egyptians, he should punish this and this Rabbi Chia for doing so. Imagine that. Court can't force him to sell it, to give the salt to those people. He could just give back the money. But... This is some heavy pressure. Nobody wants their reputation ruined like that. Everybody's going to find out that we can't trust this guy. He's not honest. He's not a man of integrity. He says things, but when it gets a little inconvenient, he backs out. Even though there was a serious meeting of minds here. There may have not been a Kenyan. There was, there was lacking the symbolic act, but there was still a transfer of some of the, of some of the funds. Source number 10, it is impossible for a terrestrial court of law to enforce complete morality. People, therefore, must recognize that there is the ultimate judge who sees and hears everything. The Torah's way of life, as we said, is called halacha. It's not just what the court can enforce, because courts follow action. But there is what is expected of us. There is a eye who hears, who sees, and an ear that hears all the time. Hashem is watching. And... 
one must be aware that even if it is not enforceable by the courts, there is another element of the heavenly courts. So, so, so far we've seen that in a case where there is a transfer of money, there is this mishapara, this divine retribution made in a form of a declaration. But what if there was no transfer of money? There was just a verbal commitment. And it was lacking a kinyan, so the court can't enforce it. It was lacking a transfer of any funds. There was no deposit. It was just a verbal commitment. So there's no divine retribution either. What about them? You tell your neighbor, I am going to help you tomorrow pack up your boxes and load it up onto your moving truck or your moving van. And then the next day, you say, hey, the court can't enforce. I didn't pay him any, he didn't pay me anything, so there's no, or, you know, I didn't, there's no money involved there, so there's no divine retribution, can I just back out? Or, in the case of the landlord and tenants, they come to an agreement of how much the rent should be, but they did not make a kinyan, they did not grab the, the hair, head covering or do some designated symbolic act as the conclusion of this agreement, like a contract. And there was no transfer of money. There was no deposit made. It was just a verbal agreement. So there's no enforcement of the court and there's no divine retribution. So what then? Could we just back out? Could we just retract? Yes, you may. But let's take a look at source number 11. Here's an interesting question. Hello, Mark. Question is, what happens like this? Let's say you marry, uh, a man marries a woman. And then, um, they get divorced. Could this man marry the divorcee's sister? So Rachel and Leah are sisters. Some man comes along and marries Rachel. And they get divorced. Can, can this man go ahead and marry Leah? Why not? However, Torah law says, Nyet, this is forbidden. Source number 11. You shall not take a woman with her sister in marriage in her lifetime. While, well, in biblical times, polygamy, marrying a man marrying more than one wife was permitted. Uh, King Solomon married a thousand wives. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about that next time. But this is not practice today. Don't get worried. But according to biblical law, not practiced for at least a thousand the past thousand years but back in the day a man was was allowed to marry and was common to some extent for a man to marry more than one wife but one was not allowed to marry two sisters even if he divorced one sister he would not be allowed to marry the sister as long as the first sister was alive if the first sister who he had married died then he is permitted to marry the next sister but while they're alive the first one is alive they were not allowed to marry the second sister. 
That's what the Torah says in the book of Leviticus. We read it on Yom Kippur from the Torah. Now, here comes the question. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, Yaakov, married two sisters. Rachel and Leah, Rachel and Leah, were his, both his wives, and they were both the daughters of Laban and his wife. They were two full-fledged, full, full sisters. How did he go and marry them? Well, you might say, well, Jacob lived way before the Torah was actually given. The Torah was given to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. That was a few hundred years, at least uh, you know, over 200 years after Jacob married Rachel and Leah. But the question is, we see in source number 11, the second part, our forefathers took upon themselves to keep the entire Torah. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob prophetically knew the, all the teachings of the Torah, and the Jews, they passed it on to their family. The Jews were aware of certain ideas, not maybe not all, of certain things of the Torah. It was officially given to them at Mount Sinai, but the family of Abraham, they had circumcision, they had uh, kosher, and so on. They had Shabbos, they had tithing, and they had this law as well, not marrying two sisters. So how did Jacob go ahead and marry two sisters? He took upon himself to fulfill all of the teachings of the Torah. And here is how this relates to our discussion here. The Rebbe has a beautiful explanation. Jacob, yes, he adopted this custom, a stringency to fulfill the teachings of the Torah even before it was given to him. He was not commanded not to marry two sisters. God did not tell him. God commanded them to have a bris. He told Abraham, you should circumcise yourself and your family. That was a direct instruction, commandment from God. But there was no commandment not to marry two sisters. That was a personal stringency that Jacob had taken upon himself. He adopted as a means of connecting to God. Beautiful. But here is what happened. Source number 12. Yaakov had told Rachel he would marry her. When Jacob came, Yaakov came to uh, the city of, <coughs> of Rachel. He had first met Rachel, Rachel. He loved her and he promised to marry her. He promised. He uh, made a commitment. He made a verbal commitment to Rachel to marry her. Marry her. He worked seven years to marry her. And everybody knew he wanted to marry Rachel, Rachel. And even told her certain signs uh, to make sure there's no mix-up over here. What happened is that um, Rachel's father, Laban, tricked him. And when it came the night of the wedding, he brought in Leah instead of Rachel. So Yaakov ended up um, consummating his marriage with Leah. The morning, in the morning he finds out, hey, this is the twin sister who sounds and looks just like her, but it's not really Rachel, it's Leah. And now Yaakov is in a quandary, what should Yaakov do? Here, Yaakov does not want to marry the second sister because he had taken upon himself a personal stringency not to marry two sisters. And now then, he unwillingly, but he married Leah. He's not allowed, according to his personal stringency, to marry Rachel. But he made a verbal commitment to Rachel. So it's not so convenient. He wasn't commanded not to marry her. He was allowed to. The Torah wasn't given yet. But it was inconvenient for Jacob, for Yaakov, to go ahead and marry Rachel. He would rather not be married to two sisters. He wanted to follow the laws of Torah even before it was given. But it wasn't given yet. And he made a verbal commitment to Rachel. And what does Yaakov do? He says, I will honor my verbal commitment. Even though there was not necessarily a kinyan, there was no symbolic or designated act 
It was just a verbal commitment. There was no deposit, there was no transfer of money. But there was a meeting of minds. And Rachel was expecting Yaakov to marry her. And, ya- and Rachel and Rachel would be terribly upset and saddened, offended, and so on, emotionally, if Yaakov did not carry through. So, he put his convenience aside and he married two sisters. He married Rachel. It wouldn't help to divorce Leah because Leah would still be alive. He would have to kill her. That wouldn't be right. So he marries Rachel because he made a verbal commitment. From here we see that even if there's no divine retribution and there's no Kenyan, nonetheless, there is a moral obligation for one to pledge allegiance or have allegiance to a pledge, to a commitment. Continuing at source number 12. Yaakov had told Rachel he would marry her. Yaakov desired to keep them non-binding Torah laws, but he could not refuse to keep his word, which was an ethical norm and thus took precedence. Even when inconvenient, one ought to keep his word, even if there was no kinyan or payments. It's not just about punishment. Just because there's no court to enforce it, just because there's no divine retribution, there's merely a verbal commitment. But because there was a verbal commitment, there was a moral obligation. No punishments involved. Okay. Nonetheless, it's the right thing to do, even if it's inconvenient. And this is brought down in quote of Jewish law, source 13, when people agree to a transaction with a verbal commitment alone, it is appropriate. doesn't say one is obligated. It says it is appropriate for them to keep the word even though payment or deposit was not issued. If the seller or purchaser retracts, although the one retracting will not receive the Mishapara adjuration, this, this curse that we've mentioned before, before about divine retribution, he is nevertheless considered untrustworthy. And the sages are displeased with him. Such a person who made a verbal commitment and doesn't follow through, yeah, we can't enforce it, there's no punishment, but such a person is not one that is pleased. We're, not, we're displeased with him. Sim- <coughs> Similarly, if one commits to give a colleague a gift, that fails to do so, this person is considered untrustworthy. A person made a serious commitment to give a to give a gift. There was no Kenya, there was no payment, but you said, you said it. If you don't follow through, the sages are displeased. It is appropriate. Another level. There is court punishment, there is the heavenly punishment, then there is what's the moral thing to do? What is appropriate? What is expected of us? And you, you might say, oh, so, so what? So the sages are displeased. Who cares? Who cares if the sages are displeased? Source 14, the sages are in tune with Torah values. And when they are not pleased with someone, it means that this person has departed from Torah's vision of society. Though not terribly unjust, failure to com- keep commitments is a moral failure. A person must be ready to care for another, even if nothing negative will ensue to himself by failing to do so. By doing so, a person demonstrates true care for another. The Torah wants us to live in a society where we really foster a, a caring uh, and uh, we really care for one another. Not just that I'm nice to somebody else, I don't retract because the court will, will force me or because I'll get some kind of retribution. No. Even if there's no way, there's no punishment. But nonetheless, 
Torah Allah tells us this is the true path, this is the path that is expected, the proper path where we should walk in is to abide by our words, even if there's just a verbal commitment. So Ryan uh, Leslie, whatever his name was, uh, the court, according to Jewish law, would not be able to force him to pay the million dollars to the person who found his laptop, even though he had, prom- he had verbally committed to do so because there was no symbolic act, designated act. There was no transfer of funds, but there was a verbal commitment, and therefore the appropriate thing to do would be to pay up. But the court would not be able to enforce that. The secular court did, but not the Jewish courts. And there wouldn't even be a, retribu- a divine retribution. It would just be the appropriate thing to do. However, there are, two, there, would be a, there are some exceptions to this rule. One exception would be, source number 15, if one says to another, I will give you a present, he may retract. However, right, he may, as we said, it's just verbal. However, it is improper to renege on a pledge to give a small gift because the recipient relies on it. Here the Talmud says, when is it improper? When, it is, when is it improper to renege, to retract on a commitment, a verbal commitment? If it's a small gift. Why? Not, not a sale. A sale is always uh, a person expects it. But if it's a gift and it's a small gift, then the person relies on it. I say, I'm going to give you $50. So yeah, why not? $50 is not such a big amount. Because reneging on the commitment wouldn't be wrong because it would be harming the recipient. I know that tomorrow you're going to give me a gift of $50. So I went ahead and I ordered a nice lunch because I figured you're going to, you said you're going to give me $50. Why wouldn't you give it to me? Even though there was no Kenyan, there was no, uh, you know, the symbolic, the designated act. And you didn't give me a deposit for it. Nonetheless, you said it, it's a small amount. However, So therefore, in that case, it would be... a appropriate to follow through with your commitment. However, if I say, I'm going to give you a million dollars tomorrow. You know, uh, I don't, if I say that to somebody, I don't think anyone expects me to give them a million dollars because uh, they're not going to go ahead and, uh, who knows what, buy some mansion because I don't, how do I have a million dollars? Why would I give such a, a person such a large sum? It, the person doesn't ex- really rely on it that they're really going to get a million dollars. And then the next day when you renege, you, you retract, oh my gosh, I was banking on that million dollars. The person did, it was not a true meeting of the minds. The person did not really uh, expect to fully, wasn't fully relying on that money. So that would be an example that even though there was a verbal commitment, but if it's a very, very large gift, so then you can back out. Because the recipient or the potential recipient uh, did not fully expect and therefore the, there's not such a breach of trust. That's one example. Another exception would be source number 16. If there was a considerable price change, the person who retracts is not considered untrustworthy. That's where one of the post scheme, one of the Rabbi Yerucham brings from, from the Rabbi Zarah, that, that this, is, this is the law. Because all parties understand that a commitment is made under particular circumstances. If the things were to change drastically in such a way that it would make keeping the commitment very detri- detrimental, not just a little inconvenient, but extremely detrimental, all parties understand this kinyanless commitment might not be kept. Well, somebody gives a pledge for... Uh, a pledge. Somebody commits to, to do something, to you know, commits to help you tomorrow to move. But then the next day, uh, God forbid, his mother dies. I mean, 
there's no problem. You don't have to feel, you don't have to go and, no, say, it's not, I'm only doing what's appropriate. I have a moral obligation to help them pack up. No, because it's totally unexpected. You know? So the, the person, the recipient, the, the, other, the buyer, let's say, understands that if there's a drastic price change over here, the market crashes, I don't know what, something that was totally unexpected, and, the, and it'll be very detrimental, detrimental for the person to follow through with their verbal commitment, so then it's understood that then it's not even necessarily appropriate. Because when is it appropriate? When it's expected. The person was relying on this. But if there's a very drastic change, then... And Shulchan Aruch, Chod of Jewish Law will say, it's, to, it's fine to back out. Okay, that is the third step. Now comes the fourth step. Mr. Jack Cohen is on a cruise and suddenly there is a hurricane, a storm hits the sea. And the ship is rocking from side to side and Jack Cohen offers a prayer to God. He says, God, if you stop this storm, I pledge $100,000 to charity. As soon as he finishes the sentence, the sea is quiet. A couple minutes later, Jack says, God, did I say $100,000? Oh, you're so wealthy, God. 75000 is enough for you. A few moments later, did I say 75000 50000 sounds like enough. 25,000 sounds like, you know what, God? You're so wealthy. What do you need money for? You don't need anything. You're good. Why do I need to give anything? As soon as he says that, the storm erupts and the cruise, the ship is, sh is shaking from side to side and all of a sudden, Jack calls out, God, God, what's, can't you take a joke? Commitments. Commitments. So in an ordinary situation, there was no drastic change of price, drop in the price or circumstance. It wasn't a large sum, it was a regular sum, which is expected for a gift or for a sale. Even though there's no Kenyan, even though there is no deposits, there is a moral obligation, it is appropriate to follow through with merely a verbal commit agreement. But, if there was a drastic price change, or it was, let's say, a very large sum, then it's not considered that you are untrustworthy or displeased by the sages. Now comes the, f the next step. Source number 17. It is the way of the pious to honor all verbal agreement, commitments. Says the Me'iri, one of the Rishonim, he says that no, the way of the pious is that even in those exceptions, even if there was a drastic change, nonetheless, it is the way of the pious to honor all verbal commitments. There was a verbal commitment. No matter the situation, one should honor this commitment. There is value in not reneging on any commitment if it comes at a cost, however slight, to someone else. There's somebody else involved there, then the pious will honor their commitments. By doing something that is not universally accepted, expected, a person demonstrates his commitment and passion for caring about another. It's not just about me. Yes, there was a drastic price change, but I made a commitment. 
So there was a there was a change of circumstance. There was a you know a large give. You didn't really expect it. No, there was a verbal commitment. They will the the pious will honor all verbal commitments. Finally, we take this even a step further. Not just verbal commitments. What about a mental commitment? It was not verbalized. But in one's head, one made a mental commitment to another. What does this talk about? And let's uh, make sure this is clear, not to think that we're in Gansan Meshuga. Not every mind, every thought that crosses your mind, you got to follow through. But what is it? What's the definition? What's the criteria here? The verse says in Psalms, in Tehillim, God, who will sojourn in your tent? David says, King David, God, who will, who will sojourn in your tent, in God's tents? Who will dwell upon your holy mountain? He who walks uprightly, acts righteously, and speaks truth in his heart. What do these words mean that King David is referring to? Who is dwelling on the mountain of God? Who is close to God, going God's ways? He who speaks truth in their heart. You're, you're speaking truth. That's speaking. That's with your mouth. What does it mean to speak truth in your heart? Says the Talmud, this refers to a mental commitment. Not a verbal commitment. A mental commitment. The story is told of Reb Safra. The story is brought in the Sheilta. It's a very uh, a book of Jewish halacha. Reb Safra, one of the sages, was uh, had a, had a donkey for sale, and he's uh, in the shul. The shul is a place to pray and to study, but it's also a place to do business. People meet each other. And Rav Safra was in the show and he was saying Shema, Shema Yisrael. He was praying to God. And when we say the Shema, we're not allowed to communicate with anybody. We're, we're talking to God. We're declaring our faith in God. Nothing comes, nothing comes in the way. Nothing can, should disturb us. We should not make any hand motions, I, uh, you know, any kind of signals. We should be fully focused on talking to God. So while he's saying the Shema, and maybe he didn't have a sitter, or the, the, someone came over to him, didn't realize he's saying the Shema, and he says, Hey, Rav Safra, I'm ready to buy your donkey for $200. Rav Safra is silent. He doesn't answer him because he's in the middle of saying the Shema, and he knows the law that in the middle of saying Shema, we cannot communicate with anybody. He doesn't even make any motions, nothing. So the guy thinks, oh, the guy is ignoring me because 200 is too little for him. He says, okay, 300. And still, Rab Safra is quiet. So he says, 400. And by the time he said 400, Rab Safra finished saying the Shema. When he finished saying the Shema, he told him, okay, I'm going to sell you the donkey, but I'm going to sell it to you for 200. Why? Because Reb Safra said, when I heard you saying, I'll buy the donkey for 200, I already resolved in my mind, in my heart, to sell it to you. I settled on this price. I was ready to sell it to you. And if you would have walked away, I would be happy. And when I would finish the Shema, I would say, let's go, let's do the sale. 
You were unaware, so you raised the price. But I already made a mental commitment, not a verbal commitment, but a mental commitment. I already decided to sell it to you for 200 I was happy with this price. Absafer didn't have to tell him that. But he did. He told him, I am going to follow my mental commitments. Because that extra 200 is like a loss to you. Because I already decided at one point, when you said 200 I already in my mind decided that I'm only taking 200 to take away another 200 from you? I already made a mental commitment for 200 So you weren't aware because it wasn't verbal. But I, on my part, already decided that I'm only going to take 200 from you. And this is brought in Code of Jewish Law as well. That a God-fearing Jew, doesn't say it's appropriate, it says a God-fearing Jew, a God-fearing person, someone who wants to do something that's just between him and God. Because the other person doesn't even realize, doesn't really know that he's losing something by paying 400. Because he wasn't aware of this person's mental commitment in his head. But it's between us and God. So one who is God-fearing ought to honor even mental commitments, a commitment to another person. If a merchant mentally resolved to sell at a particular price, but the buyer was unaware of this resolution and therefore added to the offer, the seller should not accept more than the original amount, as per the ideal of speaking truth in excuse me, one's heart. The same applies to the buyer. That if one, if one, uh, the, the opposite story, if the seller says, hey, will you buy this for $100? And the buyer is saying the Shema, and he resolved to buy it for 100 but the seller doesn't realize, and he says, hey, okay, I'll sell it to you for 75 If the buyer resolved to, to buy it for 100 then he should follow through with his mental commitment. A God-fearing person should do so. Now, there are a couple of conditions here. Number one, let's see in Source 20, that this ideal pertains to all matters between people. Not every mental commitment that you make in your head, if you make a mental commitment that I'm going to go on a diet, then you don't have to follow through. Even if you make a verbal commitment, it will not necessarily be appropriate because unless it's not, if it doesn't affect anybody, you're just by yourself, nobody's going to be affected by the fact that uh, somebody's overweight and you make a commitment, even if it's verbal, for sure if it's mental, if it doesn't affect anybody, then there's, not, there's no appropriate of, of following through. We're talking here if it affects somebody else. So if it affects somebody else, even if the person will lose out slightly, and not, just, not losing out, but you already committed to a certain price in your head. So changing that price is already a loss, some sort of loss on a very refined level for the other person. So this idea pertains to all matters between people. One ought to honor a mental commitment to bestow a favor upon another if one has the ability to do so. Concerning one's own needs, they are not, that are not mitzvah related, one need not honor even verbal commitment. So if I make a commitment, I'm going to have scrambled eggs for breakfast. I commit to having scrambled eggs for breakfast. You don't have to follow through. It's between you and yourself. Even if it's verbal, for sure if it's mental. <laughs> Just because you had a, a verbal commitment or a mental commitment doesn't mean anything. But if you made a commitment to your wife, you say, I'm going to make you scrambled eggs. Or, uh, you know, let's, uh, let's, uh, if you made a verbal commitment to, uh, to give a gift to somebody, 
or to sell something. I'm going to, I made a commitment, I'm going to gift this book to somebody. Not just a, a, a thought passed through your head, but you resolved, you resolved, you made a firm commitment in your mind that this is going to happen. I'm going to gift this book to somebody. I'm going to give a gift to them. You made a resolve to sell this at a certain price, even if it's just mental. Then, a God-fearing Jew, even if it's not verbal, if it's verbal, we said that it's appropriate. If it's mental, a God-fearing person, as we see in Source 21, if we are moral, if we are moral to find grace in the eyes of others, when social life becomes more irrelevant, we might change our behavior. We're not moral just because uh, we want to be trustworthy by people because then we get to the point we don't really care what people think about us. Then, then we could just uh, change our behavior. No, being moral is not just about um, what the courts can enforce. It's not just about retribution. It's not just about being deemed trustworthy by other people. It's about doing what is right. When we go beyond the normal expectations in a way that is not observable to others, we demonstrate that our passion is truly legitimate pure and thus durable. It's not just about what people, not just about social, even if they don't know. They don't know that I agreed in my head, I resolved to sell it to you at this price. Nonetheless, being pure honest between me and God, I already decided, I already settled on this price and a God-fearing person will not ask for a cent more, will not take a cent more. So we have many, many layers here. Layer number one is if there was just a verbal agreement, the court will not enforce it. The court would only enforce an agreement for a sale or for a gift if the verbal agreement was accompanied by a kinyan, a kinyan sudder, a symbolic act, a act designated by the courts, like the grasping of a, of a handkerchief that the buyer takes the seller's handkerchief and takes it off his head or takes it off his, his scarf or something like that and lifts it up, that is a symbolic act of a transfer that when that is done, the court will enforce that the sale should go through. If that kinyan is lacking, but there was a transfer of money or a deposit, then the person is susceptible, will get a declaration of divine retribution. And he who paid off and punished the generations of Sodom and Gomorrah and the Egyptians and so on, he will enact, uh, will, will give punishment and retribution. The heavenly court will mix in over here. Not in the afterlife, but in this world. And not just in this world, but it's something that you should have known by yourself, even if you're not transgressing any commandment, something that you should know, it's common sense, that if there was a meeting of minds and there was a, a transfer of money, even though there's no transfer of, of ownership, there's divine retribution. And then... Even if those two are lacking, there was just merely a verbal agreement. Nonetheless, it is appropriate, even if it's inconvenient, to follow through with a verbal commitment. And that's why Jacob married Rachel, even though it was inconvenient for him to marry a second sister, because he had made a verbal agreement, a commitment to Rachel. And Rachel was expecting. If the person is not really expecting it, like it was a very large gift, or if there was a drastic change of circumstances, then... The sages will not say that this person is untrustworthy and, dis and they're displeased with him because there was a drastic change or the person was not expecting it. However, 
the Miri says that a pious person will honor all verbal agreements, even in those exceptions, even if there was a price change, and even if there was a change of circumstances, a drastic change, and even if it was a large gift. Then, Kodah Jewish Law says that even a mental commitment, if it was to another individual, and one has the ability to do so, not that a person is poor and has to borrow, the person has the ability to do so, and they resolve to do so, and there's somebody else involved, then a God-fearing person should honor, should follow through with this mental commitment. Now, if it's a pledge for a mitzvah, it's a different question. A pledge for a mitzvah has different rules. A pledge for a mitzvah should always be honored. It's like a promise, and these things do not apply. A verbal pledge for a mitzvah. So, getting back to the case of a landlord and tenant, if they had a verbal agreement, if there was a deposit, a, some sort of transfer of money, then they might be, he might be getting, if they want to back out, they might be getting a divine retribution declaration from a Jewish court. If there was no transfer of money, there was just a verbal agreement, and it was not accompanied by a Kenyan, this uh, symbolic act, then it would only be appropriate for them to follow through. But if there was a drastic change of the situation, then it would be understood that it is okay for one of them to retract. The question would be what exactly is the definition of a drastic change, but then there would be room to uh, not deem this person untrustworthy for backing out. But a pious person will uh, honor all verbal commitments, no matter the changes. And a God-fearing person will honor a mental commitment if he committed mentally resolved to pay a certain price or to give it for a certain price. Back to the case of your, you promise your friend, you, you, you uh, verbally agree to your neighbor to help them pack up. It would be appropriate to help them. Being lazy or being not in the mood the next day is not a good enough excuse. Jacob also was inconvenienced by marrying Rachel, the second sister. But he had to do so because he made a verbal agreement. He would, there was no drastic change of the situation. And even if there was, it is appropriate to always honor a verbal commitment. Let's wrap this up with a little story. I have a brother-in-law, married my sister, and his grandfather, Rabbi Shusterman, was a rabbi in Chicago, great rabbi. And as a youngster, the previous Rebbe had told him to take upon himself to always daven, always pray from a siddur. By praying many times, you sort of know the prayers by heart after a while. He's saying it every day. You know, the Shema, Yisrael, other prayers. But there's something special about praying from looking inside of, of a sitter. It helps to concentrate and so on. Not to make any mistakes, but also it helps the concentration. So he took upon himself to always daven from a sitter. He made like a resolution. He made a, a verbal commitment to always pray from a sitter. One time they were traveling, and this is going back probably, you know, 80 years ago or so, and... They came to a hotel one night and uh, oh, they had 10 men. Let's go. Let's, let's dove in Mincha. Let's make a minion. Let's do the afternoon prayers. But nobody had a sitter. There was no synagogue. Nobody had a sitter. It's not like today they have uh, pocket sitters and uh, you have a sitter on an app on your phone or on, online. You can find this text of a sitter. 
So it's uh, in the olden days. So everybody just went on and said it by heart. You know, it's easy. Everyone knows it by heart. But he had made a verbal commitment or even a mental commitment to um, say the prayers from a prayer book. Here is what he did. He was God-fearing. He, maybe it was actually, it probably was a verbal commitment. He sat down and he took some paper and he wrote out the whole prayer for Mincha. And then he read the prayers from his handwriting. He had made a commitment. Let's say it was a verbal commitment. He had made a commitment. Well, here, maybe it didn't involve somebody else. Uh, maybe it did. Maybe the previous Rebbe well, wanted to hear that he was doing it, but it doesn't directly involve somebody else. But nonetheless, maybe you could say it's a commitment for a mitzvah to pray more fervently and with more devotion. But we just see that there's something about a commitment. And he went, uh, even it was very inconvenient, but he made a commitment and he made sure to write it out and he prayed from his handwriting. This is just a glimpse this is not uh, what we call halacha lemaisa. This is not. I'm, I'm not a judicial uh, court. I'm not in a bethdin. I'm not a member of a rabbinical court. Got to be a real expert for that. But this is just a glimpse of Jewish law. Uh, it's really complex. Here's just some of the ideas how the judicial court, the Jewish court, is different. A little bit different. Sometimes very different than the secular courts. If somebody makes a pledge, I'm going to give a million dollars to charity or to this charity, I don't think the court, the secular court, could really enforce this wealthy man to give the pledge. Unless the, let's say, the organization really relied, really uh, spent money relying on that gift. But otherwise, they can't really, it's just a pledge. But Jewish law, if this pledge was accompanied, let's say, by a, for sure, if it was accompanied by a Kenyan, by a, this symbolic act, this designated act, by the representative of this corporation, this organization, then the Jewish court would be able to enforce it. And would be able definitely to give a divine retribution, even if there, were, if there was some deposit, let's say, or something like that. So Jewish, the Jewish legal system differs and as Jewish people, the first place we go, if both parties agree, we should follow Jewish law by going to a based in a judicial courts. Thank you for joining us for Lunch and Learn number 154. A little bit different than usual, different style, Jewish law, but nonetheless, very important. Another angle to Torah study. There's so many different areas of Torah study. There is history, there are stories, there is Parsha. There is mitzvahs, and this is this is real law. This is this is law, and there, one big section of Jewish uh, code of Jewish law deals with these kind of things. Back in the day, like when the Jews all lived in Israel, and it was a Torah society, uh, a government which was based on the Torah laws. Then the law of the land was the Torah law, and the rabbis were judges. There were courts. There was a system of of, of law that was exactly like the Torah law. Now we live uh, in a place that is the country is not governed by Torah, which is uh, okay because as Jews we are to follow Torah law. But whenever possible, we should go to a judicial court, a Torah court. All right, thank you for joining us. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And if you have any questions, you can you can post them now and comment below. 
What is something that you can break without touching it or without moving it? That would be a commitment. We shouldn't be breaking a commitment. We hear, we now understand, not always easy and maybe we don't have to go to the extreme, but we have a better picture of the importance of allegiance to a pledge. Maybe we'll think twice before we make a pledge. Okay, thank you for your feedback. You're very welcome. And uh, see you next time. Sei gesund and be well.